Welcome to the Philadelphia Podcast Festival, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Guys, girls, and everybody in between. Uh, I just want to point out, this is the first time that the Indie Hall community has been a host for the Podcast Festival. This is our first time for the Podcast Festival. This is the first day that Indie Hall has been a host of the Philadelphia Podcast Festival, which means that Breaking Mayberry, Dan and I, we are honored and proud to be the first ever show recorded as part of this new relationship between these two organizations, <laughs> these creative outlets. I hope that uh, we're not a giant albatross around the neck, but you have all made a terrible mistake leading off with us. I, we're the breaking of a champagne bottle on synergy, I guess. <laughs> Um, so, we are Breaking Mayberry, we are the show that blames your strained relationships with your parents on old television. Um, I am one of your hosts, I am Marty Schneider. I'm the other host, Dan Ludwig. And before we roll on into it, let's go ahead and, like, go through this giant list of sponsors that made this whole thing happen. So, we'll get the awkward break up to the, up, down, up at the front. Uh, of course, thank you to Indie Hall for hosting, and thank you to Indie Hall's podcast, Junto, which is a collective organization of people making podcasts. So if you're interested in this, please get in touch with them and uh, become part of that community. Uh, our other hosts are uh, Tattooed Mom, the National Liberty Museum, World Cafe Live. Thank you to New Media Touring. Thank you to Fireball Printing. Thank you to Everything is Awesome, which is another good podcast you should listen to. They put on a festival of their own a couple months ago that we were part of, and it was fantastic. It was, in fact, awesome. Um, thank you to OB Media Podcasting Services. Thank you to Philly Banner Express. Thank you to Tea House Screen Printing, uh, Bridge Set Sound, and of course the Philadelphia Podcasting Society for putting all that together. Let's make it sound like there are people here and give them a hand. Am I clapping? Yeah, yeah, listeners at home, there's an audience here. <laughs> Uh, if you've never listened to Breaking Mayberry before, what happens is Dan and I, uh, usually we take on an episode of the Andy Griffith Show, but other classic TV shows as well. Uh, we basically like go through them, deconstruct them, usually make fun of them a little bit, but also a try... A lot. A lot. A lot. That's the majority of it. Uh, but also try to see like what ideas came from them that kind of planted seeds and things that we're seeing now. Uh, today we're doing something slightly different. We're not going to like take you play-by-play play through an episode of The Andy Griffith Show because that would be intolerable to do in front of a group of people. <laughs> an extremely you- weird thing for a group of people to do where two people like, <laughs> es- explain an episode of a TV show you'd never watched. Uh, so we're going to expand beyond it a little bit and sort of talk about dads and TV in general. Um, in the 60s, and if you don't know what the Andy Griffith show was, basically he was America's dad for about 10 years. Uh, every episode, he taught his son a lesson, and family sat down and watched it. Um, and it kind of got us thinking about dads throughout the entire post-war history in general. Um, uh, and TV is weird about a lot of things. Sex, cursing, gender, cops. For some reason, we're as a society, extremely horny for TV cops. Like, we do shows about zombies, cyborgs, the literal devil, and for some reason they're all cops. <laughs> uh, but TV is particularly weird about dads, um, especially sitcoms. Uh, sitcoms drink heavily on Father's Day. Sitcoms punch the wall when Cats in the Cradle comes on. Uh, sitcoms refer to him as my old man or sir. Uh, Sit- sitcoms are primarily... Cr- Created by people whose dads did not want them to become sitcom writers. So, yeah. uh, and over over the years, we've sort of used that figure on TV to work out a lot of stuff. It's sort of been like puppet therapy, where uh, we've not just worked out relationships with family and and stuff, but also authority and stuff that was going on in our country. So he sort of became a stand-in for a lot of shit. Uh, so yeah. What we're going to do is start at the the 50s and sort of work our way up to now and talk about how dads were sort of built up and then ultimately fell, how we went from Ward Cleaver to Homer Simpson. Yeah, uh, and we're also talking about, like, dads kind of as an idea. Uh, One of the 
theories that Dan came up with is that like the concept of the TV dad, the sitcom dad, uh, really follows a little bit of the relationship that uh, people, the general audience, has with, say, the U.S. government. And that comes to the disclaimer here. Um, most of what we're going to be talking about today is extraordinarily white, uh, because the history of television in general is extraordinarily white. Uh, it changes a little bit in the 70s and then kind of goes back to being very white during the Reagan years. And then only until very recently did it, does it like kind of shift back. Uh, and there's also, if we're taking the theory that uh, like sitcom audiences or sitcoms themselves follow kind of the, the audience's uh, relationship with the government, surprise, surprise, white people have a different relationship with the government than non-white people do. Uh, we're also giant exception here. We're also not going to be talking about Bill Cosby and, uh, Cliff Huxtable because fucking no. Uh, you just said that in every fight or flight instinct in my body set on fire. Yeah. Um, and we're also not going to be talking about sitcom daddies. Sitcom daddies, I think is a completely different topic. Although if we're going to discuss that, uh, I think John Stamos pulls far ahead, right? Like. Yeah, but we can go down a massive rabbit like, hole with that. Four women in the audience that just nodded their heads. Also, we should point out that four women in the audience is amazing for a podcast <laughs> festival. <laughs> I think we're beating Chapo Trap House with that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, Dan, do you want to take us into the uh, the introduction? We're going to go all the way back to the 1950s. That was the flashback noise. Yeah. Uh, uh, good, good use of audio medium. So, let's start with the 1950s, where... This is sort of the advent of TV in general. Uh, it's obviously the post-war era. Um, and the first family TV show that came on were shows like Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best, which were adapted from radio shows. Um, basically, at this time period in the 1950s, there were three kind of TV shows, a celebrity doing a variety hour, cowboys shooting each other, and families having mild problems. Uh, one of, the one of the first examples was Father Knows Best, as I mentioned before, which is a horrible TV show. As the name suggests, it's a show about a dad who knows everything and basically just has three kids that kind of suck. <laughs> like, they're not particularly stupid. They're not particularly poorly behaved. They're just not very good at anything. And the dad just kind of is mean to them until eventually fixing all of their problems. Um that, that's going to be a, a recurring theme, by the way. Uh, the dad, capital D dad in this case, is the person who comes in and fixes everyone's problems uh, in that relationship. And uh, we'll get into it later, but that doesn't even necessarily have to be an actual father. Sometimes you just have the team dad, the cast dad, who shows up and is just the one sane person that everyone relies on. He's a paternal deus ex machina. He just like shows up at the end, teaches a lesson, fixes all the problems. So that you don't actually have to do a resolution. You just have a figure that does that for you. So we watched the first episode of Father Knows Best. And to be fair, like, a, well, a lot of what we're doing is just based on the first episode of stuff. Because we watch the Andy Griffith show every single week. We have no interest in being fair to these other shows. We watched like 10,000 pilots for this. Uh, in case you're wondering, the one for Father Knows Best is uncomfortably sexual. Uh, it has like some <laughs> weird undertones that... Are will take forever to dissect. But well, no, we're, we're, we're going to dissect them. Let's see what we can do in, in a minute. <laughs> like a, so the, the, the plot of the first episode of Father Knows Best, so this is a, uh, I think the father is like an insurance salesman or something. It's like a, a well-to-do 1950s gentleman. He has three kids. Uh, one, the oldest, is a daughter who is like 17, 18, college age. Uh, this episode revolves around his like 12-year-old son. And then there's like a Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen type cute little girl character. And this episode is verbally belligerent to everybody around her because you couldn't really do jokes. Your characters just were mean. And um, this particular episode, the first episode revolves around Bud, I guess, is the name of the middle child. I'm making that up. I don't actually know. Sounds uh, Bud sounds correct. And Bud, it's a 1950s name. Bud is uh, going to the school dance. It's his first dance, and he's got his first date with a girl, and he's trying to teach himself how to dance from a book that is at least 50 years old that he checked out from the library. So he's trying to teach himself ballroom swing dancing. The family finds out about this, and they try not to hurt Bud's feelings and be like, hey, dude, you suck at this, and also this is not a good idea because they're scared that if this shy, timid little boy like learns that they... Uh, they know that he can't dance. He'll just retreat into a pubescent 
like fetal position. He will literally go lock himself in the basement. This happens. Yeah. So that's all fine and dandy. That's fine. It's a normal problem. About halfway through, the weird part kicks in where uh, the oldest daughter, played by Eleanor Donahue, that may, that name means nothing to all of you, but it means a lot to us because she shows up on the Andy Griffith Show later. So the oldest daughter uh, mentions that she kind of knows about the girl that Bud is taking to the dance, that she has a certain reputation as a firecracker and, like, is going to be way too much for Bud to handle. Basically, this show stops halfway through to, like, also, this woman's a slut. Yeah. Just, just slut shames the hell out of this, like, 13-year-old girl. Uh, and <laughs> so the solution to this, as I think you can naturally intuit, is that the dad goes to the girlfriend's house, calls his son a coward, and then teaches the girlfriend how to dance in a basement. <laughs> uh, just naturally. Like, what you do? You know, that's point A to point B. This, I, I wish we had it up here. The image of this is so uncomfortable because the, the man comes in and he's like, I'm here to see... Betty Ann, I don't know what the, I'm not memorizing any of these names. Uh, and Betty Ann's grandmother or caretaker is just like, oh, yes, she's down in the basement cowering. <laughs> and he goes downstairs and he realizes, oh, this woman isn't a firecracker slut at all. She's a timid, like, child who's hiding in this basement because she doesn't know how to dance. And then he gets uncomfortably Joe Biden close. <laughs> just to this, looms. Like, tiny child hiding in this basement. And then she says something like, I'm scared because I don't know how to dance and Bud's the best dancer in school, which I don't understand how any of that comes to. And so this 50-year-old man takes this 14-year-old girl by the hands and said, I'll teach you. And then they dance together in the basement. We're not done with the weird <laughs> shit yet. We're at like the 20-minute mark. Uh, so then, for some reason, they teach the son how to dance using his sister, which, again... The very, older sister. Yeah, very uncomfortable and weird. Um, and ultimately, the resolution is that when he goes to dance with his girlfriend at the, at the high school prom, he notices that she dances like his dad, which, just dripping with uncomfortable subtext. Episode one, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, that's how they come out of the gate. Um, but so basically the dynamic, and this extends beyond uh, this show. It goes into Leave It to Beaver uh, and the Andy Griffith show. And it, basically, it has this whole thing of people had been through hell up to this point. You had a nightmarish world war followed by complete economic collapse, followed by another nightmarish world war that only went away when we discovered a new way to level cities. Uh, so everything had been so horrible for so long, and everyone finally had the idea that maybe things were going to not be horrible for a while, and they needed a way to tell themselves that that was the case over and over and over again. And this was sort of how they did it. They created sort of these worlds where no one had real problems. They were all superficial, emotional, very uh, skin deep. And even those, you had this permanent paternal safety net under you, where at the end, an authority figure was going to sweep in and solve any issue that you had. Uh, you also sort of had the added thing of, um, uh, le especially Leave it to Beaver was designed for this. Uh, the, the father, Ward Cleaver, would come in at the end after the kid, Beaver, would get into a bunch of trouble and he would teach a lesson, and the way it was designed is kids watching it would learn Beaver's lesson, and they'd learn how to not be little shits. Uh, and the parents would actually watch along, and it was designed that they would learn how to be parents from watching Leave it to Beaver. Uh, they would just, I guess, like watch along and just like write on a notepad, like, don't hit kids. Uh, <laughs> use words. Parentheses, unless they really deserve it, and yeah. parentheses. Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, so you sort of had this echoing effect where uh, sort of TV dads kind of became like the source parent. If you saw Ward Cleaver do a thing on TV, there was a good chance your dad was going to start doing that thing. So he dads kind of became like this, basically the, the god dad. Like, cardigan sales went through the roof. Yeah. Every man in America had to have a nice soft cardigan to let you know that he's a, a gentle paternal figure. Yeah, the dad from which all dads... Sprang. Dad Prime, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and then this kind of carried over into the 60s where the, the idyllic 50s kind of started to 
changed. Things changed and things kept changing. You had the Great Society. You had uh, civil rights were really picking up. You had the JFK assassination, uh, the Summer of Love, eventually swinging into the Vietnam War. So everything got really, really scary. In for Basically, no matter where you were in society, something about your life was changing. It was either getting uh, scarier, better, or both at the same time. So, let's, 1962, our boy Andy Griffith takes the stage, uh, along with America's first wacky uncle, Don Knotts. Uh, and for at the beginning of the show, he's not actually the paternal figure that we always refer to. He's actually kind of a dick who like makes fun of everyone, and uh, he was actually pretty good at that. But as the like need arose to have an America's dad figure, he kind of like becomes a Tom Hanks role. In the beginning, he's more like a trickster god who's just playing pranks on the people of Mayberry, and it actually kind of rules. Uh, and from that point on, we, they realize it's not just enough to have this kid uh, or this man teaching his child a lesson. We need to make the entire like cast around him dial up the absurdity of them so that he can be like the community dad and solve everyone's problems, solve the, the, the store owner's problems. He can solve the barber's problems. And so this is where we get the idea of capital D dad, the community dad, who by the, like, a lot of people in uh, history of TV fill this role. Um, let's see. Uh, damn it, I had examples. Um, <laughs> Hank uh, Hill is a good one. Hank Hill from King of the Hill kind of fills that role. Uh, Wayne from the underseen letter, Kenny, kind of fills that role. Sometimes the community dad is not actually even a man or a father. Uh, on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, Captain Raymond Holt plays that role, and they like call attention to it. A classic one is Colonel Potter on M.A.S.H., who's just, like, solves everything regardless of situation. And sometimes the community dad is, in fact, a woman, but more often you get this, like, cool little subversion where there's an older man who thinks that he gets to be the community dad simply by being older and male, and there's a younger woman who calls him out on that and says, no, I am the dad now. Yeah. Uh, this is the plot of the Mary Tyler Moore show. This is the plot of Murphy Brown. This is the plot of 30 Rock. For some reason, it's always women that work in television studios. Uh, I, think, I think it's because the writers didn't want to have to go too far to do their research. <laughs> uh, and so basically, the more unstable everything gets, uh, the, the, the more powerful dads become. By the end, Andy Griffith is just sort of like... Able to solve everything by snapping his fingers. He's basically Thanos. Yeah. Like, he well, is omnipotent. Thanos. Reverse Thanos. Yeah. He uh, adds half the population of the world? Possibly. Exactly. I don't know. A lot of people were doing it Mondays at 9.30 to the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy that mental image. <laughs> Christ. Uh, so... One quick thing I wanted to mention is as a result of, like, again, we had to watch 10,000 pilots, one of which was The Real McCoys, which was a, uh, a, a, a ripoff of the Beverly Hillbillies. And, uh, again, this was, it was a terrible show, not really worth watching. But one thing that came up in the course of researching this was uh, at one point someone tries to get a grandfather to start dating again, and he says the phrase, you're dangling sugar before a dead horse. Which really sounds like he's talking about being impotent. And it's one of the most disgusting best phrases I've ever heard in my life. Uh, on to the next thing. He did uh, not tell me we were going to do that bit before this show. <laughs> I found that yesterday, and it's just been burning, like, just burning a hole in me ever since. Ah. Uh, okay, so... So should, should we move on to the 70s? I think we pretty much all get that the 60s were weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, on to the 70s, you sort of have a weird thing where, after the 60s end, da dads and families in general disappear. It, they just stop existing. Um, on television. On television, Let's, yeah. <laughs> no, there was Put that little asterisk. In, there was actually, like, a great dad snap. Thanos removed half of the nation's dads. You're going to reference that fucking Infinity War 8,000 times. That's the plan. We're going to do at least one Leftovers reference, I hope. Um, so, uh, the... Uh, so Families disappear, and the reason for this is that over the course of the 60s, as we sort of became more invested in dads as a, a comforting authority figure, they sort of got entangled in our idea of authority. Uh, they sort of basically started to represent, in a way, the government to, uh, for a lot of people, this organization that was going to come in and solve everything, or uh, authority in general, uh, and your ability to rely on that. Uh, and when you get to the 70s, the 60s didn't really 
end, the 60s died. Uh, and the common year for that is 1968, the year of the Tet Offensive. Also the year that the Andy Griffith show goes off the air? Yeah. Um, which was basically the end of the Vietnam War, this thing that had been wildly, not the end of the Vietnam War, the beginning of the end of the Vietnam War, which was this massive traumatic event where the Viet Cong attacked on a common, on a day of celebration when everything was on TV. Uh, this was also around the time that uh, Bobby Kennedy and MLK were assassinated. So not only did you have this traumatic event that sort of showed that authority figures weren't looking out for you, you also basically had the ideas that things were going to get better killed. So everyone, in a lot of ways, were really not okay with authority during this time period. And even on the right, there was this hard push towards populism and away from the government, partially because it was, uh, they, it was seen as coddling, but also they had told you who you could and could not serve at your diner, and people were pretty pissed about that, uh, mostly in the South. Um, so basically... On, in popular culture, we're done with authority figures at this time period. And, and even the like remaining vestiges of the family sitcom, they are completely different. Uh, 1971, All in the Family shows up, Archie Bunker comes out, and you have a, a dad, an authority figure, who is openly bigoted and who the audience is not supposed to uh, like agree with. And then the audience kind of winds up agreeing with him anyway because Norman Lear like severely underestimated the amount of bigots that were in his audience. Yeah, um, it backfired hard. Yes. Yeah, so uh, the, the family sitcom doesn't fully go away, but suddenly there are a whole bunch of other things. Uh, workplace sitcoms, uh, essentially. Wim, a lot of shows about women coming into the workforce and having that, like, fighting their, their dad boss, as I, just, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah, women um, sort of start to become characters rather than just sort of, like, background cleaning robots. Ma- MASH itself is, uh, is a workplace comedy. It's a very weirdly defined way, but it is. It's a workplace comedy, and they had a dad who was the colonel. Uh, quite literally, dad was in charge. Um, you, had, you had shows like Three's Company where it was sort of the norm where you had characters that were, like, single people who were in really precarious, weird situations – in Three's Company, a guy has to pretend to be gay so that he can live with two women in a house, the only one that he can afford. He has to, like, constantly fool his landlord. That was sort of the norm. Uh, uh, somebody made a great face out there <laughs> at the description of, of the TV show Three's Company. This was a, te- a show that was on television yeah. for several years. It was a big hit. Wildly homophobic. <laughs> uh, so, uh, basically, Norman Lear, uh, this sort of prolific TV creator, brings back the idea of family comedies, but sort of saves it by focusing on this idea of what if the paternal authority figure isn't Sucked. inherently good? What if he's not someone that you can trust and depend on? Uh, what if he's a, p- a real piece of shit? What if your dad's a shithead? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is sort of like sitcoms over the course of the 60s sort of functioned as a consensus. You, If you wanted to, like, have your, your preconceived notions uh, challenged on TV – you went to serious shows like NYPD Blue or uh, or uh, Hill Street Blues, stuff like that. So we weren't at NYPD yet, but yeah, yeah the, the cop drama things. shows up around this time. Yeah, uh, if you wanted, if you watched a family sitcom, you just kind of wanted to see stuff that you were okay with, and so it sort of uh, they almost served as a middle ground, so you can sort of see them as kind of taking the temperature for where the country is at on a lot of things. Uh, Before we get into Norman Lear and everything that he did in the 70s, I do want to like call attention to the exception that proves the rule, essentially, of, of Norman Lear stuff, the anti-Norman Lear. And that is uh, another wonderful, t- wonderful when per- in quotes, TV dad, uh, Howard Cunningham of the TV show Happy Days, uh, who is notable because he sucks, his show sucks, mm-hmm. and he can sit on it. Mm. I have a lot of like strong opinions about Happy Days, because about... like. This whole revolution that we're talking about in television where, like, the family dynamic changes or whatever, that lasts about four or five years before Gary Marshall, another TV producer, a whiny little baby, turns around and says, well, what? why can't we have a show where the, uh, the family sit together and the parents aren't getting divorced? Why, why can't we have just a nice family sitcom? Shut up, Gary. You had that for 20 freaking years. <laughs> You had that for so long. So it's basically to like placate his little whiny man, his little whiny childish fantasies. And to do that, he sets his enti- his show back in the 50s. He literally takes everything back and says, this was great back when I was a kid. Why can't it be the same way? And what does he do? He recruits Ron Howard from the Andy <laughs> Griffith show. He takes the little kid from the Andy Griffith show and he says, you're a teenager now. Let's convince people it's the 50s. Ron Howard has spent his entire life lying about what year it is. 
<laughs> and I have a lot of feelings about this. Are we good? I'm and, good. And even then, Happy after he did it. all that, the only thing anyone gave a shit about was the Fonz, the single biker guy who punched jukeboxes and fucked a lot. I, I, I will say, like, big props to Henry Winkler for, like, playing every baby boomer's icon for several years and then spending the rest of his career being a, like, playing doddering morons. And so that all the baby boomers got to watch their hero, the coolest guy on the world, just turn into an absolute incompetent idiot. Henry Winkler knows exactly what he's doing, and it rules. Yeah. <laughs> so we should also talk about the other exception, um, which is in the 70s, you sort of saw the emergence of a, a sitcom centered around African-American families. This started with Good Times, uh, which is a story about a poor African-American child family uh, basically living paycheck to paycheck in abject poverty. Um, which you'd think would have gone over well, but uh, this was created by Norman Lear. So, uh, be, be clear, this is still white dudes creating yeah. black, black families And a fun TV. thing about this is that uh, you, you, you think it's going to be like uh, really well-received representation. The Black Panthers threatened to kick Norman Lear's ass for this. Uh, they like confronted him in public and said, uh, You're, how come the only sitcom about a black family is about people that are paycheck to paycheck with an illiterate son? Uh, and as a result, uh, are you kidding me? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> are you kidding me? You wrote an entire syllabus worth of material for this, and you didn't remember to turn off your phone? I'm a consummate professional, what can I say? <laughs> uh, this is podcasting. Uh, so, um, yeah. So as a result of this, uh, Norman Lear creates The Jeffersons, which is about a... Uh, an African-American family succeeding. And this sort of sets the precedent for the next, uh, like, 20, 30 years of basically stories about black families completely subverting everything we're talking about because they don't really have the same relationship with authority that white America does. It becomes very weird. Like, they create the Jeffersons, which is about a newly wealthy black family, and then that becomes pretty much the plot of most sitcoms revolving around black families for 40 years. That's That's... The Cosby Show. That's uh, Blackish. That's um, the Bernie Mac Show. That's I, I'm yeah. running out of. Uh, it's not really until like UPN shows up and you have shows like Everybody Hates Chris yeah. that you have a show about a, a middle class black family ever again. And to be clear, let's, let's to tie this all back. Good Times, the one that started this all, kills the dad in the third season. Uh, dad dies on Good Times. Because the actors hated Good Times so much. Because it, uh, the character that coined that catchphrase, Dynamite JJ, basically Urkeled, where he just was like a side character that became so wildly popular because he had a catchphrase that like the actors that thought they were going to tell real stories about like life in America. I, I guess Family Matters time. disproves what I just said, but yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, there's uh, not like TV that doesn't star white families is really the exception that proves the rule. Um, so, yeah, throughout the 70s, you kind of have this severe aversion from authority figures. And so, with the exception of, uh, of, of these shows, families disappear. Because no one wants to be lectured anymore uh, by a figure that represents authority in the government. We uh, don't want to hear from Jimmy Carter. Like, yeah. We don't, we don't want to hear the peanut farmer telling us what we should and shouldn't do. Yeah. Uh, this is also the period of Nixon. So That's true. Yeah. A, yeah. Not a good face on authority in general. Uh, but then the 80s come, and authority becomes friendly again. Sort of. Yeah. So uh, with the 80s, we go from authority being seen as malevolent and dangerous and the people that send you to die in Vietnam to – Almost like, incompetent. Jimmy Carter's presidency isn't defined by evil, but he's widely seen to have been wildly incompetent, which is capped by the Iranian hostage crisis, uh, a thing I did not have time to Wikipedia, but I know was bad, uh, uh, which sort of was this giant clusterfuck that really uh, basically compromised anyone's faith in the government's ability to do anything. And then we get a man who literally calls his wife Mommy. Was, what? Ronald Reagan called his wife mommy. Did you not know that? Was this when he was senile or just in general? I don't think there was ever a point where he wasn't senile, but yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, so Ronald Reagan was sort of this great febrezing over America's <laughs> relationship with authority. Where He didn't send the message of, like, the government is good and can watch out for you. It was sort of, 
hey, the government's still terrible, it's, but it's, it doesn't matter. Almost like he washed over it with some sort of uh, erasure, like uh, some sort of whiteness. Yeah. Like suddenly it was washed in white. Is there a term for that? <laughs> it, it escapes us. Um, so, yeah, you had sort of Reagan, yeah, ju- just paving over the widely seen inadequacy of, uh, of American government. And in this time period, you had uh, family sitcoms made a, an extreme comeback, but with a lot of caveats now. Mom is dead. There all, is no mommy. All moms are dead. It's yeah, leftovers, but with moms. For some reason, every single show in the early 80s is about uh, e- uh, single dads raising one or more children because the mom has either died or run off. To be, to be fair, that's also the plot of the Andy Griffith show. Everything yeah. ties back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you have shows like uh, My Two Dads, which I should... A bad shit concept for a television show, My Two Dads. Uh, a mom abandons her child, so the child is raised by two guys she had sex with who don't know which of them is the dad. Uh, yeah. Uh, that was pitched and then written and then filmed and then watched. Uh, you have shows like Silver Spoons where a, uh, a, a millionaire with the mind of a child who rides around on a giant train and plays video games all day has to raise his bastard child. Uh, shows uh, like Who's the Boss, which is more innocent but just inept Italian dude has to raise his kid while being an Italian stereotype. Uh, and and then, then the crowning jewel of all of them, the feather in all of their cap, everywhere you look, it's Full House. A show I hate with every fiber of my being. I tried to watch the pilot of it again just to, like, familiarize myself, and within, like, 30 seconds, it felt like there was acid in my blood. So the, the, the plot of Full House is basically, like, what if there were two wacky uncles and they all raised the kid together with the dad? Uh, and they're just, like, three different kinds of... I'm not even going to say masculinity. You have John Stamos, who is supposed to be, like, the coolest, the rocker one, the most manly of them. Bob Saget, an absolutely filthy comedian, playing, like, the world's cleanest, uh, friendliest dad. And you have uh, this guy, Dave Coulier, Uncle Joey, who is basically doing a shitty Robin Williams impression for the entire... And watching the thing, you realize, oh, this was really about Uncle Joey being homeless, and his friend, uh, Bob Saget, takes him in and says, hey, come watch my kids so that, you know, you can do laundry sometimes. Yeah. Um, and... The, the general thesis is that if you take three adult men uh, and have them raise a kid together, they can maybe, if they really Voltron together, amount to a single mom. Uh... <laughs> uh it's it's such a huge switch from the 1950s ultra competent uber dad to like each one of these three people is like one third of a man possibly it takes a village of idiots it uh, takes three village idiots that's what it should have gone with that uh, a big part of this is over the course of the 70s uh with shows like murphy brown you had this new idea of women as existing uh <laughs> you sort of acknowledge that moms occasionally did things uh so the, the role of dads basically stayed the same, but you now realized that, like, in between all the lectures and, like, getting home from work, stuff actually had to be done. Uh, so, and, and this was also during a time period in the early 80s when divorce was starting to be normalized. So you were no, newly confronted with the idea of dads raising a kid without a mom there to do all the busy work? The first episode of Full House, I swear to God, is 14 minutes of two men trying to change a diaper. And That's it, the entire plot. It's, the worst thing about Full House is that, for some reason, if, if two characters are mad at each other, the hang time on there being a, an interpersonal conflict is maybe four seconds before someone just goes like, never mind, I'm not mad at you. Here's a catchphrase. That show is 80% catchphrase. How rude. Have mercy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, those aren't landing as well as I thought. Not as big of a Full House audience as, as I pictured. Full, I have a weird soft spot for Full House, though, because it's kind of like part of my origin story of, of as a podcaster. Uh, Full House is every little sister's favorite television show. Um, there was a period of time, uh, like for an entire summer, my little sister watched every episode of Full House, which came on like four times a day in reruns. And I was shocked at how unfunny this show was. And I found myself watching every single day thinking there has to be a moment. Like, how did this show air for so long with no semblance of a joke? So I watched 
an entire summer's worth of full house. Didn't have a whole lot of sex in high school, this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> not, a, not a huge popular. He's a podcaster, yeah. Yeah. But so I feel like that's kind of my origin. Like, that is an, uh, uh, like, clear sign of what I would become in the future. That is what I would go back in time and stop myself from doing if I had the ability to do so. <laughs> uh, so You'll be a podcaster. That's going to make sense later. <laughs> Just fun, don't do it. <laughs> fun thing about Full House, everybody involved should probably go to jail for uh, like child endangerment because during this entire time period, Bob Saget was cocaine. He was just, like, more cocaine than man. Uh, and also, if you've ever heard Bob Saget do stand-up for, like, five seconds, you know that he's, like, the most disgusting man alive. Um, and there was one particularly bad incident where they had, like, for the baby, they had, like, a, you know, one of those mannequin stand-in things. And while all the kids were offset, uh, Bob Saget pretended to have sex with it, uh, not knowing that the entire time all the kids were in the green room watching on TV. So somebody should be in jail for this TV show because that was definitely not the only horrible thing that man did. I, I also think that that show really set up uh, the Olsen twins for failure because there's literally no way that you can spend your entire life, that you can be in the opening credits before you understand what shapes are mm. of a show and turn out like semi-okay. Uh, and then I thought about it and I realized those babies had to be auditioned. Like... <laughs> Someone had to bring in this baby, and those two babies, and then another person had to go, these, these two babies are better at being babies than all of the other babies that have come in. And that entire concept should blow all of, We should all be just shocked at how batshit that idea is, that there were baby auditions, that there are still baby auditions, and that every baby you have ever seen on television or in a movie had to audition for that role. I want us to take a moment and think about that. Okay, that's good because we're on like a radio show and you can't have dead air. Okay, but. yeah. So we gotta we gotta keep moving through the eighties because there's so much shit. So eventually the mom comes back. Uh, this happens with shows uh, like Married with Children, Family Matters, The Wonder Years. Roseanne. Roseanne shows up, and Roseanne is definitely the like archetype of a female dad. Yeah, Roseanne is the dad of that show. There is a dad on there played by John Goodman, quite good. But Roseanne is the one who fixes everyone's problems. Yeah, so basically the mom comes back and we've thoroughly driven into the ground the idea that that dads are morons. They're like subhuman ape creatures that like can't possibly in a million years work a diaper. Uh, And this sort of keeps going where we're, we're exploring the idea of just paternal authority figures as benign dipshits who can't really accomplish anything to save their lives, but it's fine. Um, this of, is, of course, the pioneer of that is Tim Allen. Dead on. Definitely didn't sound like Bowser. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, Tim Allen sort of pushes this idea of just, like, uh, dads are terrible, but it's fine, which is also part of a more individualistic streak. Everyone wanted to be went from being the dad lecturing the kids to being the kids judging the parents. We, as the audience, we went from being uh, Andy Griffith uh, laughing at Opie to Lisa Simpson laughing at Homer. Um, This was also during a period where advertising was much more directly directed at children. So no one really wanted to get the parents to buy shit because the kids could just take their credit cards. Uh, So... Uh, I want to talk about... As kind of our, like, when we start to segue into the other period, I do want to take a moment to talk about Tim Allen and Home Improvement as a dad, uh, and also his later show, Last Man Standing. Uh, so, Last Man Standing, which is on the air right now, is basically all in the family, but played completely straight. It's all in the family, but you're supposed to think that the shitty uh, dad who is making fun of his millennial kids is the smart one. And that's so weird to me, because the plot of literally every episode of Home Improvement is, here's Tim, he's like a huge toxic masculinity dude who doesn't know anything. And in order to fix any problem, he has to go to his liberal NPR listening neighbor, probably gay neighbor, uh, who tells him, Hey Tim, I'm You can't see this on the radio, but I'm covering my face because I'm Wilson at this point. Uh, who says, Hey Tim, maybe you should talk to your wife like a person. And then he goes back and he's like, Hey, uh, Wilson says that persons are wives now. And somehow that, (laughs) That solves everything. He that was literally what he did for seven years. And he's like, he missed the entire point of his own character. I'm, I, 
Tim Allen sucks and he should be in jail for <laughs> the only reason he's not in jail is that he snitched on a bunch of people like when he was a coke dealer in Detroit. Um, oh and yeah, he, for the he, three people that didn't know that Tim Allen used to be a coke dealer. Yeah, and he he should be in federal prison right now, but he squealed. Yeah, he can't go back to Detroit because someone will murder him. Uh, so. Into the, so into the 90s, where you have this general decline of dad, we roll into the Clinton era, which is defined by, like, Clinton being fun, but also, uh, a, you know, sexual predator. Everybody's uh, horny dad. <laughs> yep. Um, so you have Clinton sort of really reinforcing the government as just sort of something to not be trusted or believed in, but also it's fine because everything's good. We can chill with the it. The free market's taking it. care of it, so whatever, that the government is uh, ineffectual and the worst. Um and you, during that uh, time period, the definitive show is The Simpsons, which is basically, in terms of our collective understanding of a father figure, the last nail in the coffin. Let, let, we'll be clear. This is like pre-season 10 Simpsons. Homer Simpson evolves over a little bit of time. We're talking about the period where Homer's like a lovable doofus who sucks at everything but still wants to do everything uh, you know, for his kids. Pre-Peter griffin occasion. Yeah. You know. Well, so, he, he does like have a steady decline through the 90s and... okay. Uh, yeah, uh, steady decline through the 90s and uh, early 2000s, which... Uh, I mean, I, so I, I, think, I think Peter Griffin is a good segue for us to go into the 2000s, right? Yeah, so stuff that happened in the early 2000s. Nothing fun to talk about. <laughs> Everything is very, very bad. <laughs> Everyone's unhappy for most of it. Um, authority figures are either seen as uh, deeply morally compromised or violently incompetent. Uh, no one trusts anything. Um, and everyone's fucking miserable. And during this time period, you have... Uh, basically, Homer Simpson becomes... Uh, a, a, a chimp. He goes from being an idiot dad to a caveman. You have Peter Griffin come on, come on, who's basically Homer Simpson, but if he was the devil. Uh, you, and you, you have uh, you have Arrested Development shows up uh, and it pretty much serves this idea of like, what if we had somebody who was supposed to be like the fatherly authority figure, but he was also a selfish asshole and ruined everything for everyone all the time. Yeah, <laughs> and even like. In a dramatic sense, you had shows like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad, which sort of explored the idea of how much damage can an incompetent or uh, morally compromised father figure do? Like, how bad can this possibly get? Uh, sort of as a way of working out our feelings of how compromised authority was at this time. Uh, and even in cases like King of the Hill, where the, uh, the father figure is like a good dad, he is also a person that is deeply, deeply broken, who is basically only able to parent effectively and nothing else. And the nice thing about King of the Hill is that it like, addresses all of Hank Hill's issues with his father. Like and how that has like parlayed itself over into his relationship with his own son and all of his idiot friends. Like that show gets into a genesis of this that I don't think any other show really addresses that well. Um, like there have been father and adult son shows before, like Sanford and Son, which we should have mentioned earlier but didn't. So sliding it in there now. Quick shout out to Sanford and Son. Uh, coming Sanford Elizabeth. and Sons, check it out. <laughs> uh, but. At least with Hank Hill, it's almost like paying homage to the shows that came before it. Like, like Hank's relationship with his father, Cotton, is very much similar to television's relationship at that point with their, like, post-war counterparts, essentially. So, that one was nice. I, King of the Hill's a good show, I guess, is all I'm getting at here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the 2010s, in terms of paternal representation, a train wreck. And... You move into the uh, Obama years, and it actually sort of softens in a way because you don't really redeem biological fathers. That's sort of just abandoned. But the prevalent thing becomes found fathers. Uh, you have uh, characters like Ron Swanson, uh, Captain Holt from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, who are sort of uh, this tentative embrace of fathers. Like, maybe if we're never going to be given... Uh, an authority figure that we can respect or depend on ever again. Maybe we can find one or create one. Um, and it's sort of this very hopeful view that maybe we can have an, 
have a government and have a ruling body that we deserve. You can find your Andy. Yeah. Not rewarded in any way. <laughs> uh, the, that hope was essentially dashed all, uh, at the end of uh, those eight years. Yeah. So, so, so then 2016 happens, and uh, good night, everyone. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, honestly, I don't. I don't have anything for for current day stuff. Um, I mean, uh, sort of. Uh, we've we've seen that uh, that hopeful nature carry on. There is still a prevalence of found fathers. It's much less, and in in a way, we're sort of going into a '70s thing again, where we're just kind of blanking them out. Like dads are just kind of gone as a general focus, and now we're again focusing on individuals in precarious situations who are. Basically avoiding uh, authority figures. There's no one that you can really depend on anymore, which is a bummer of a way to go out. So instead of going out that way, we've got a couple of minutes. Um, we do have an audience, and this is a live show, so we are expected to do some kind of level of audience participation. We are? I don't... Uh, <laughs> does anybody like have a favorite TV dad? And I'm thinking dad in like the general capital D sense. Uh, so your favorite TV dad could be a mom uh, that you... like that we missed or somebody that we didn't comment on enough uh, TV dad that you want us to talk about. And we'll tell you how much we think they suck. Okay. The Laura, one that, wait, can I spoil yeah, go, the, the ending of Twin This Peaks? is a podcast festival. Anyone listening to this will have seen Twin Peaks at this point, you bunch of nerds. I, the one that did the murder? Yeah. <laughs> the, I mean, that one kind of writes itself. <laughs> Sorry if you've, if you're in the room and you haven't finished twin, yeah, uh, yeah, that one's kind of a layup of like good dad that kills his daughter. Uh, I mean, that's that's during the uh, the '90s when we are kind of working on this thing of um, paternal figures that are ultimately untrustworthy, basically due to you know the the nice face that Reagan and Clinton put on, and then they did horrible things like Iran Contra. And uh, that one time Clinton bombed an aspirin factory by uh, by accident. Um, so you you do sort of have the, oh yeah that happened. Um, uh, you you do sort of have this sense of like untrustworthy uh, safe figures. So I think that sort of tapped into that. Yeah. Anybody else? Any other dads we missed? Uh, Goldberg fresh off the boat. Oh yeah yeah. So that's kind of the modern era where we are addressing like. Non-white, non-Protestant families exist. Uh, the Goldbergs are a very Jewish family um, that I absolutely love. But in their case, like, dad is still kind of in the, like, Fred, very much in the Fred Flintstone vein of, like, borderline incompetence. But very much in that, like, I still love my, uh, my, my sons and I love my idiot family. Uh, he fixes problems, but he also causes as many problems as he fixes. Well, it's part of the jo- uh, the Jeffersons thing, where like the paternal figure when you're when you stray from like the the typical like Anglo like waspy norm, uh, the quirkiness of paternal figures really becomes about uh, accepting each other's idiosyncrasies and flaws because we need to band together to fucking survive this nightmare together. Also, I would say that both of those shows are actually about the mom. Yeah. So, like, especially Fresh Off the Boat is about the mother character. Yeah. So, dad takes a back seat. What up? What else we got? Oh, Fresh Prince was the other example I wanted to mention earlier. That's another one where, like, the black family having money is the entire plot of the show. Yeah, Uncle Phil, one of the greatest TV dads, I think, of all time. Uh, like despite as, what the name suggests, right? Uh, and there's also that great moment in like classic episode of TV where Will realizes he's never gonna get a relationship with his actual dad, and he like breaks down crying, going, "Why don't he want me, man?" And it's such a heartbreaking moment, and that kind of like ties directly, and that might be the beginning of the found father point. Yeah, I can't believe we forgot to mention Fresh Prince. Yeah, that was uh, an example that I wanted to mention earlier. We ran- Solid call. Yeah. We ran through like 800 TV shows. Uh, I, yeah, I, be, I wrote like a college thesis. <laughs> like, I have a syllabus in front of me. He has so many notes. <laughs> he has so many notes, people. Are we, uh, are we, I think we're about ready to wrap up. I don't know how we got, we got two minutes. Anybody, one more dad? Boy Meets World is interesting, right? Because like, there's two father figures on that show. There's the actual father. There's Mr. Feeney. And in the early episodes, there's a teacher that kind of stands in as a father figure. 
so we have to for that we have to briefly reference the Cosby Show. Sorry, uh, <laughs> there was like this undercurrent from the eighties of um, like the like the fuck you competent dad thing. Where like, and I think Boy Meets World was sort of for that. Like it was Cosby Show through Seventh Heaven through Boy Meets World of like. This was done always very intentionally. Of like, I want to contrast the stupid dad by showing a competent dad, um, and even then, like the Boy Meets World dad kind of had like brief moments of. I mean, of he was he was pretty competent. Yeah. Like uh, TGIF, like that whole lineup in general. Fridays on ABC was about like semi competent, semi decent nuclear families, uh, and they kind of became like what everyone wanted to be in the 90s. You either wanted to be single and have the friend's life, or you wanted to be, like, a family that was solid enough and to have the Boy Meets World Family Matters kind of life. Uh, and I think that made a lot of people deeply unhappy. <laughs> because those aren't really achievable. Not particularly. All right, that I is our time, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you for sticking around for Breaking Mayberry. You can listen to us on all the podcatchers of your choice. Uh, please rate, re- rate, and review. Uh, thank you to Indie Hall. Thank you to the Philadelphia Podcast Festival. We will see you all down at the fishing hole. Y'all come back now. That outro means nothing to this. That outro means nothing to all of you. <laughs>